welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Before President Trump took the oath of office, there were already whispers about impeachment. Those have grown louder as Trump ignores presidential norms and tradition and tweets defiance of the rule of law. But in the history of our country, no president has ever been removed from office by impeachment, for good reason. One of the nation's preeminent constitutional law scholars, Lawrence Tribe, a professor at Harvard Law School, has written a new book entitled To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. He joins me now. Thanks for being here, Larry. Thank you, Joan. So let's begin with the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors. You write that when we think about high crimes and misdemeanors, we must ask, will we survive this presidency? And if we do, what kind of nation will we have become? Explain that concept and where the abuse of power fits into the considerations. Well, the original meaning of the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors which was added to make sure that not only treason and bribery, but other grave abuses of presidential power would be able to trigger impeachment and removal. The original meaning had little or nothing to do with ordinary crimes like tax evasion, and it had everything to do with things that might or might not be criminal, but that would undermine the system of checks and balances and the rule of law. And that's what we have, at least potentially, in the case of Donald Trump. We have a range of things from possible cooperation with Russia in order to become president and to do so in violation of numerous laws. And we have a whole series of things since his presidency that individually might not be obstruction of justice or might, but that form a pattern of obstruction, like dangling the possibility of pardons in front of those who might incriminate him, firing the FBI director and making clear the very next day that he was doing it with Russia in mind, and taking a number of other steps. So let's take up the pardon power, which you mentioned. He's used the Mm -hmm. pardon power early in his term. He's bypassed the office of the pardon attorney for reasons that seem to radiate around a defiance for the judicial process. Has he actually crossed a line into abuse of the pardon power with any of his pardons? Well, I don't think the untraditional character of what he's doing crosses an impeachable line. It's it's part and parcel of his deviation from all kinds of norms, which is dangerous in the long run, but would be hard to claim as a basis for removing a president. On the other hand, take the example of Joe Arpaio, the infamously racist sheriff, who was convicted initially of violating the civil rights of immigrants by rounding them up based on their appearance as non-white and as non-citizens, whether they were or were not, uh, and who was ordered by a federal court to stop that kind of racial profiling. He basically thumbed his nose at the court, defied it, was convicted of contempt, and it was that contempt conviction that the President of the United States, with a great flourish, set aside, saying, Joe is a good guy, and I'm in his corner. Now, that, our book argues, 
is a serious abuse of the pardon power. Even standing alone, it might eventually count as an impeachable offense because it basically challenges the ability of courts to enforce rights under the Constitution. That is, if the president basically can say, I don't like this or that group of citizens, so I don't care who violates their rights or defies the courts when they tell him to stop, I'm going to pardon him. That's a fundamental abuse, and the whole system of checks and balances couldn't survive if presidents could do that. So, Larry, as you know, in our history, the Senate has never gotten the two-thirds vote necessary to throw a president out of office. And one of the questions you write is crucial to ask when considering impeachment is whether removal is likely to succeed. How do you decide that in what may be a changing scenario? Well, you can't decide it with certitude. But if it's clear, as it would be, for example, today, that there just wouldn't be 67 votes, the two-thirds needed in the Senate to remove the president, deciding to impeach him, even if you have the votes in the House, could be a foolhardy effort. Foolhardy because he would be acquitted in the Senate in all likelihood and would then go around saying, no, no obstruction, no collusion, see, I was innocent, it was a witch hunt all along, and he would be emboldened. And you can't do it more than once to a single president, sort of like the boy who cried wolf. So you have to be very careful about not moving too quickly, but also not moving too slowly, because if a president threatens the rule of law and threatens the very survival of our democracy, saying that we will do nothing about it is really unacceptable. So what's your opinion after studying this for decades and after writing this book, should Trump be impeached? Well, my opinion is it would be a big mistake to have a clear opinion of that until (laughs) the full investigation occurs. That is, if somebody says, oh, I'm convinced he should be impeached, then that person can't really take part in a meaningful way in the national dialogue that's needed when the impeachment investigation and impeachment resolutions come to the floor for debate. A lot of this is not like a snapshot. It's a movie. It's a question of how the president reacts to every step of the impeachment process. If, for example, the Democrats were to win a majority in the House of Representatives in the fall and were to start a broad-scale impeachment investigation of the kind that the House engaged in for 10 months with respect to Richard Nixon, and of the kind that, unlike a grand jury, would be open to the public. If the president at that point refuses to testify under oath, or if he refuses to comply with a subpoena, that kind of reaction would, I think, constitute enough to say that we really have to move forward. And hopefully the Senate would also be outraged by that sort of defiance. But trying to predict all of that now, I think, would be really unwise. We have about um, only a minute left, but is there any other way to rein Trump in other than impeaching him? Oh, I think there is. I mean, one of the most important things is through the subpoena and investigatory power. That is, if the House turns to Democratic hands, and if they're smart enough not to suddenly jump to impeach, which is really not why people would want to be electing Democrats, but to conduct the kind of investigation I've talked about, that would begin reining him in by exposing for all the world to see things that simply couldn't be denied about the way he made his decision about ZTE 
after China gave half a billion dollars to an Indonesia project in which he had a serious stake, the way his policies with respect to Qatar moved back and forth depending on how nice Qatar was being to his son-in-law, all sorts of things that would rein him in simply by exposure. And of course, there's the power Thank you, of the Larry. I'm sorry we've come to the end of our time. That's Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Tribe, his book, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment. Ever since he signed on to be President Trump's chief lawyer in the Russia investigation, Rudy Giuliani has been a near-constant presence. This week, he addressed a business conference in Tel Aviv. A group of 13 highly partisan Democrats that make up the Mueller team, excluding him, are trying very, very hard to frame him, to get him in trouble when he hasn't done anything wrong. However, Bloomberg is reporting that despite Giuliani's continuing broadcast appearances, the Mueller team is viewing the former New York mayor more as a spokesman than a lawyer. Joining me is William Banks, a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, Giuliani seems to be constantly raising the bar with how outrageous and far from any valid legal theories his statements are. The allegations of conspiracy and fixing the case, is he now crossing any legal line of zealous advocacy for his client? Well, I think, uh, as you said in your introduction, if he's being viewed more as a spokesperson or an advocate for the president than as his lawyer, uh, perhaps not. As his lawyer, he's certainly grandstanding, I think, and and exceeding what a lawyer would do in representing client in the private sector. I think it's uh, it's a little clownish and, so, and unfortunate. So, as we look at how the Mueller team is viewing him, is he effectively not able to do any kind of negotiations with them? Because his statements have been discounted by, for example, the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, First Lady Melania Trump, documents filed in the Mueller investigation. So does he have any credibility at all with the with the Mueller team? Well, it's hard to know what what a one-on-one conversation might be like without reporters present, without any comments thereafter. So we can't be sure. It's I think it's a good thing for the president that he has a larger legal team than than just Mr. Giuliani. And as far as the Mueller team itself and what they are doing. Do, do any of his comments have any impact? Because it does seem that it, his comments may be affecting the public's perception about impeachment or some of the public's perception. Right. You know, this is, a, of course, it's a 24-hour news cycle, and those perceptions are so volatile and changing. I very much doubt that it's having any impact on the investigation or on the Mueller team. They've had their heads down uh, doing their job now for more than a year, and there have been all kinds of attempts by the, everybody from the president to, to Fox News to distract them, but it's not worked. Now, uh, just to change... Um topics for a moment here. The former head of security for the Senate Intelligence Committee was arrested yesterday on charges he lied to the FBI about his contracts with reporters in an investigation into leaks. Tell us more about this and and your take on it. Well, it is a very disturbing report. It's very disturbing uh, if the allegations are true. This is a staff member 
for perhaps the most sensitive committee in all of Congress, the Senate Intelligence Committee. Their members obviously often meet in classified session. And he, this staff member was responsible for assuring the security of their materials and their meetings. So if he was communicating with a reporter outside the meeting, of course, against all protocols and all rules, he's certainly in very deep trouble personally. And, and it's going to require us to take a second look at how we assure the security of those proceedings. Is there any indication that there there was a leak of information that was classified that we know about that you know became published yes no that, that's not clear as of yet it, it may be it may have been something that was classified at the time but then was also released in other forms later so that uh, it's nothing that we uh, were learning uh, you know simply by virtue of whatever communication he had with the reporter I think in other words he, it may have been classified at the time it sounds like it was but since is, it has been in the public domain does it seem to you as if classified materials are having less impact the fact that they're classified than they did in the past we had the you know the senate the uh, excuse me the house intelligence committee looking into those the allegations that the spy was planted and the man's name was revealed in certain publications uh even yeah. though there was a fight about it the you know i think the, the classification system has uh, come under fire I think for many years it's been fair to argue that that there's too much that's classified, and indeed, uh, from the Bush administration and the Obama administration, considerable efforts were made to lessen the amount of new classified materials and to work at more rapidly declassifying materials that had been classified for a long time. Leaking is another matter, and you know leaks have been around for as long as there have been secrets. Uh, and now with electronic media and the capabilities we have to garner information, I think both uh, leaking uh, leaking is easier as is uh, as is failing to keep secrets. Trump applauded the charges against the former head of security, and the charges are lying to the FBI. Is that a contradiction with what he said before, and specifically with his talk of a future pardon for Martha Stewart? About a minute here. Yes. Well. Uh, the president's never been one to uh, to hold too close to a line of consistency, and he he picks his favorites and his targets. I, I think that uh, you know the, the crime of lying to the FBI, like lying to Congress, is a serious federal offense, and we've learned that uh, already se- several times in the Trump uh, Russia investigation, starting with his own first national security advisor. So I think. Uh, if he, he's going to pick to pardon uh, uh, convicted persons who uh, who are celebrities or someone who he thinks he can uh, score points with, uh, that's simply uh, uh, the president being the president. I don't look for him to be consistent in that way. Thanks so much, Bill. That's William Banks. He's a professor at Syracuse University Law School and expert on national security. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.